It's well over a year ago to the day that I talked to you about the next great experiment that those in power believe is needed to save the planet. And by now, I think this has become something most people know about. It's called the Great Reset. And it was late in 2020 that Time Magazine came out with a special issue that was dedicated to the Great Reset. What it means and that this is no pipe dream. It's, it's a foregone conclusion. And hey, we'll accept it because it will save all mankind. There were episodes that I devoted to discussing this very issue, and it was actually the most downloaded and listened to. So here we are in 2022, and after world elites met together in Glasgow to talk about what many in the media and over at the UN, world leaders and activists are all pointing to as what can only be described as apocalypse next. COVID is yesterday's news. Can't you tell? Yeah, COVID is still around. And yeah, there are still a lot of people sick with the virus and Omicron has been leaving its mark. But of course, now we're looking at Omicron's little brother. But COVID has become like that annoying relative who needs a place to stay for a while. So, you know, he stays just for a few days, but really becomes a few months and maybe even a year or two. COVID is here to stay, gang. It's here to stay. A lot of people are back to work. Kids are back in school. And look, I mean, 2021, yeah, it was a rough year. But here we are in 2022, and we're sort of okay with it. And this is exactly what's expected. Because I think we can say humanity craves security more than anything else. We want to build our, our little piece of heaven right here, right now, and just to be left in peace. It's this sense of normal that has all of us looking for it. And, and, and sometimes in our quest to get it, we become so desensitized to the changes going on in the country let alone the world, that we just accept them. And when what ends up happening is we fall into this stupor and become complacent. We get tired of listening to the media. We don't want to hear about politics. And as long as I'm left alone, we move on. This is what's called the normalcy bias. And it's at work right now in our midst. It's what most people do when they find themselves in a state of crisis or some looming disaster. It's what we do with real life versus what we see on the screen. I mean, take any movie on natural disasters or a dystopian storyline. You know, what is it that draws us to see these types of films but would never want it to actually happen to us? It's that realization that what we're watching is only fiction, and not just fiction, but something we somehow believe could never really happen in real life. I mean, take 9-11. 
We can accept something like that happening in a in some stage drama separate from reality. But but that was that was the line that separated us from nine ten and nine eleven. On nine ten, we we lived with the belief that that sort of thing didn't happen or couldn't happen on American soil. Wars have always been fought on some distant land or, 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 or some far out frontier, but never in our own cities, never in our backyards. 9-11 was in fact a movie plot that we all lived in real time. And in many respects, it did change us. But it didn't stop us from trying to bring back the simpler things, the, the simpler times where, where we were perhaps more innocently naive. And that's the normalcy bias at play. In many ways, because we're now separated from that day by a whole generation, COVID, COVID has reminded us that the binge watching we do on Netflix or Hulu can become the binge living we do in the land of the real. And so now that we're almost two years into this global pandemic that literally brought the world to a halt. We're, we're starting to put that behind us already and want to move on. We're done with it, aren't you? But the world just wouldn't be the same without its next existential crisis. Haven't you noticed that that word existential is used a lot these days? And what is that next existential crisis? Climate. It's been there and it's, it's hiding behind COVID, but, but there it is. On the stage again, at the forefront. And we hear about it all over the media. We, we see it on social media. Blah, 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 climate change. But, but, but all we want to do is, look, all we want to do is get dinner ready and sit down to a nice meal with the family. Enough with all these existential crises. Can we, can we just keep those to the movies? Remember, we can't let a good crisis go to waste. And this is exactly the direction the globalization movement has taken. COVID has been the master template of how of, of, of how far government can take society towards the fundamental changes that in the past have just been only talk. Some fleeting rhetoric for the subject of dreamers and ideologues. But now, frame anything that is considered an emergent disaster around the bubble of a public health crisis, and you've got exactly what you need to actually shift the entire global order. COVID isn't the only active worldwide pandemic out there. Take what people have labeled uh, a, 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 another existential pandemic, racism, gender equality. These have also been labeled as pandemics. And, and now climate change is according to the WHO, the single biggest health threat facing humanity. And that's an exact quote. What keeps government from using the same model used to stop the spread? But Newsflash hasn't done anything to stay climate change. 
It's been more than a year since Time came out with its special issue on The Great Reset. And on episode 23, I shared the article written by economist Mariana Matsukatu, someone you need to get to know. Besides this article she wrote in Time as a sort of prophetic imagination of her own approach to economics, she's written several books on the issue of government uh, or the state being the fundamental driver of innovation and entrepreneurship. And I thought it would be good to look back at this article again. It's a curious piece since it involves the author visualizing herself writing from the year 2023 and looking back. And much of what she envisions in this pictograph of future history is exactly what the leaders of the World Economic Forum have authored and continue to push through the complete reimagination of capitalism. If you don't know much about Matsukatu, it's good that you get to know her. The IMF labels her as an economics agitator. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not enough that you have a degree these days, but that you have street cred as a social justice warrior as well. And she describes, looking back from her future perch, and this is now uh, quoting her from the article in Time, rising to the role of the entrepreneurial state. Gotta love that, entrepreneurial state. All right, let's, let's move on with, with what she's saying here. Uh, rising to the role of the entrepreneurial state, government had finally become an investor, a first resort, that co-created value with the public sector and civil society. Just as in the days of the Apollo program, working for government rather than for Google or Goldman Sachs became the ambition for top talent coming out of university. Government jobs became so desirable and competitive, in fact, that a new curriculum was formed for a global master in public administration degree for people who wanted to become civil servants. And so we stand here in 2023. Remember, she's looking from the year 2023. And so we stand here in 2023, the same people, but in a different society. COVID-19 convinced us we could not go back to business as usual. The world, was, the world has embraced a new normal, as she puts it, that ensures public-private collaborations that are driven by public interest, not private profit. Instead of prioritizing shareholders, companies value all stakeholders, and financialization has given way to investments in workers, technology, and sustainability. Today, we recognize that our most valuable citizens are those who work in health and social care, education, public transport, supermarkets, and delivery services. By ending precarious work, and properly funding our public institutions, we are valuing those who hold our society together by ending precarious work. And what work is that? She said it. Big business, right? That which, which, which drives capitalism, which is what? Profits, which is how capitalism works, wealth works. And while she doesn't say it, that's what she's saying. We're going to and wealth making by restructuring everything, right? 
She says, strengthening our civic infrastructure for the crisis yet to come. Wait a minute, there's another crisis yet to come? So she goes on. The COVID-19 pandemic took so much from us and lives lost and livelihoods shattered, but it also presented us with an opportunity to reshape our global economy. And we overcame our pain and trauma to unite and seize the moment to secure a better future for all. It was the only thing to do. That's uh, just a piece of uh, the article that uh, she wrote for Time in this special look at the global uh, or the Great Reset. And look, this is where we're headed, without a doubt. In fact, the public-private partnerships that she's talking about here, they're already, they're already here. We all know about social credit score systems implemented in China, right? That happened during the pandemic right towards the beginning. All for the common good, of course, in the government's efforts to stop the spread. See now, that same system of scoring people and companies is being implemented for the future in the context of the climate crisis. Now, by now, I'm sure you know or have heard about ESG scores. It's all over the place. It's being talked about. You can invest in ESG scores now. ESG stands for environmental, social, governmental. So this is how uh, big banking intends to score not just major private companies or corporations to see how they're behaving, but also individuals. These are the metrics that are being used. And this is going to determine, based on how these companies, these big corporations are behaving, whether uh, the banks should continue to finance and keep these companies in their own portfolios. And whether, and whether the financial record of these companies hurts or helps society on the issues of green new policies, sustainability, as Matsukato talked about, of social issue, uh, issues such as race and gender. So how many, how many um, uh, people of color do you employ? Or how many various types of uh, gender do, uh, do you employ other than your male white? And government policies that are meant to bridge the gap of private and public collaborations. So the question is, if corporations don't score as high as they should, can these banks choose not to finance and give out loans to these private companies? And, and how far does it, does it extend to us and to the small businesses, small mom and pop shops? Down to you and I, the, indivi- the, the, the actual individual account holder. Now, according to Morningstar, ESG funds have attracted $39 billion of new money in the first half of this year alone. And here's where it gets fun. A brand new board called the Financial Accounting Standards Board under the SEC will be the ones monitoring these ESG scores in matters like climate science, alternative energy, and environmental risks. And again, this is exactly what Matsukatu was addressing from her future imagination that had already happened, and here it is happening in 2022. Remember, she's imagining writing from the year 2023. 
And it's not government taking over private commerce. No, no, no. It's just government taking control of the banking system so that you'll, you'll know what you can and can't be spending money on and whether you'll be eligible to access uh, of any financing and banking in your own personal affairs. That's all. Nothing scary about that, right? Because, hey, we're all in this together to build back better. But here's the thing. While we're not seeing the effects of such intrusionary actions by the government outright just yet, but kind of, we can sit idly by and go on with our lives thinking, well, again, this is all just talk. It's just just daydreaming. Politicians going off to, to these meetings like the G20 or COP26, which just took place at the end of 2021 in Glasgow. It's all just talk until it happens. And so do we keep watch? Do we keep informed about all of these, what some might call pie in the sky dreamers or, ag- or agitators, as they're now called? They're, they're like annoying flies, right? Or do we dismiss them as just something that can never happen to us? It can never happen here. They already tried it and did it with COVID-19. What's to stop them now with the next existential crisis? Vigilance and urgency are needed now more than ever. We can't afford to fall asleep and cling to this normalcy bias that will eventually become our own undoing. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we have the courage to speak up and realize that there's nothing normal about the global transformation that is already making its way into our society. It's about time we wake up and leave woke behind. When it comes down to it, the real battle isn't about saving the world or saving the whole human species. The controversy between good and evil is as old as time is. History reveals to us, living in this post-progressive world, that the game has already been about who is in control and who's got the most money. The journey we've taken from the very first episode of Truth Real has always been about understanding the nature of us, our existence, our purpose, and our ultimate end. And now more than ever, people are asking, where is this all headed to? Two worldviews stand in opposition to one another here. The one is secular humanism which is an esoteric view that tells us about the horrors that are coming and uses science as its basis for regulating and fundamentally changing laws in order to bring society 
to the more equitable end that we all must accept. And on the other side is the second worldview, which is a biblical worldview that is founded on unchanging principles that give us our innate value of liberty and conscience and that is anchored upon the truth of our being intentionally designed and created not to be ruled over or for tyranny, but but for life and a unique component that humanism doesn't offer. And that's redemption. The first demands through coercion and power that if that if we do not comply because because of settled facts and settled science, that we are in essence the problem, the enemy to the rest of humanity, and therefore we are irrelevant. Got to get rid of us. What matters is the survival of the species. And if, and if you're identified as a dissident or some barrier to that end or to the mainstream consensus of the experts then making sure your voice is silenced and, 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 and your status stripped, your occupation, your job, and your standing canceled, is to them and their followers the moral imperative. That can't be denied. It's not just a side thing happening anymore. Those on the side of freedom and liberty are the targets. There's no such thing as a, as a fair hearing or, 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 or any such thing as redemption in this world view, in this type of thinking. Only compliance without question or you're out. And look, this isn't a novel thing. History, once again, shows us what happens to the non-compliant. Go back to the Middle Ages you were imprisoned or executed for defying the day's religious authority, and by default, you were then disobeying the king. Since the king's authority was given to him by the church, or God, according to them. That's, that's convenient. If you want to make sure to be obeyed without question, or not to have the freedom to express your ideas if they go against what the consensus says. And again, if your ideas are in fact opposed to the approved consensus, then there were no second chances unless you publicly recanted those ideas and maybe, just maybe there might be what they called mercy for you. So fear was the motivating factor and the modus operandi of the day. So, so based on just the last two years, let alone just the last six months, has anything changed from those days in history? Has humankind and its capacity to learn and grow really become the nobler and more highly evolved species that science claims we are? Because, because of our great advances in technology, in medicine, and education, etc.? We may not live in, 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 in caves anymore or, or, or in stone houses without central air and central heating or indoor plumbing. But all we've done is, is improve the outer shell, really. That's really it. 
The outside appearance looks really, really nice, really, really modern. It looks advanced, but that's what's on the but but that's that's on the outside. What about what's on the inside? What's on the inside is prehistoric. Just as power hungry, just as morally dubious as any one of our less evolved ancestors. We just put on a suit and tie and use deodorant. The lust for power and control, all the same. If you don't know who Michael Schellenberger is, then you should probably uh, go get his book. He's got several books, but there's one book in particular which I want to look at with you today because he takes an honest look at our society and the current existential crisis that is that is uh, next to take us all out, according to what the experts are saying. The Great Reset and its objectives, they're as old as as time, as the great empires of our history. It's just dressed up in modernity. That's all it is. It's inviting and, and it's even cozy to some. This is what makes this attempt at globalization all the more scary. It actually looks kind of good if you're just judging it by its cover. But if you make an effort to look underneath the hood, you'll find that, well, the engine is a bit out of sorts. To quote Shakespeare, something is pretty rotten in Denmark. Now, Schellenberger would describe himself as a lifelong environmental activist. And, and, and look, before you begin to create an image of this guy in your mind of... Another one of these tree-loving quacks who tie themselves up to trees and, and dress up in red paint in order to draw attention to how we're all going to die. He's absolutely not what you expect. He actually makes a whole hell of a lot of sense. He, he actually, this is what he does, he actually listens. Yeah, that lost art of listening. And he's actually data-driven. He's not driven by, by mainstream narratives. And the book that I'm talking about is Apocalypse Never. And for to me, it's the most honest look at climate change and the attempts of, of world elites, leaders, and academics, as well as the legacy media, to politicize an issue in order to appropriate power and control in order to, quote-unquote, save the planet. It's basically the Great Reset. He doesn't actually uh, say or write or identify the Great Reset outright. But all of the processes and the, and, and, and the thinking, all is exactly what the Great Reset is talking about. Remember that the amassment of power and control depends on one thing. The public's fear of an, inevit of an inevitable crisis. Be it hunger, poverty, economic collapse, uh, pandemics, or now the climate. Poverty and hunger and even economic hardships, those are no strangers to, to us or to the human experience. Neither are pandemics. Especially in our generation, the last pandemic was about a hundred years ago, right? 
And once that generation was gone, well, you know, you had you had it there to read about, but really was something that you didn't feel. But we felt it over the last two years, and we're still feeling the after effects. And here is where the attempts towards a one-world government have always been made in the middle of these crises, when the entire kingdom or the entire country or continent was doomed. It had to be something that, that, that threatened all of mankind. Those are the, are the best stories, aren't they? This is what makes the best films. We're all going to die. Desperation is, is the greatest pandemic of all, really, if you think about it, because it turns people into literal zombies. There's a loss of reason and, 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 and a loss of mutual respect. Scarier than this, it turns us into groveling idiots who accept anything they hear and, 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 and anything they see, so long as it takes them out of the impended doom. Desperation really numbs not only reason, but the human soul, if we let it. And here in the 21st century, those in power have taken this current global pandemic and they've galvanized it in order to point everyone to the fact that, hey, COVID, that's nothing. Look over here. You think COVID was bad? Look at the climate crisis. Look at what it's causing around the world. Just like COVID, it's, it's, it's threatening the most vulnerable. It's threatening breadbaskets, housing, and even people's overall health. We have to learn our, our lesson or else this could very well take us all out. Yep, never let a crisis go to waste. And this is where Schellenberger comes in. He actually addresses these two worldviews of secular humanism and the faith of the biblical worldview. And at times, these worldviews, yes, they can coalesce and definitely be, and, but they can also be at odds with one another. But most of that depends on how the experts use and appropriate these systems of belief to their own advantage, because this goes back to our discussions on how we relate to ourselves and to each other. In the biblical worldview, we are the result of the intentional creation of a creator who acts out of a moral law based in love, truth, and goodness. Humanism assumes that while it claims to seek equality for all, it does so through a prescribed equity, meaning that our individual needs and beliefs, they're measured and only have value as they compare to the whole of a collective, whether it's social, political, or ethnic. It has nothing to do with an objective moral truth to which we each choose to live by because it's self-evident, but rather a relative moralism that is, de- that is decided by a selective few that that then the whole must adopt in order to belong and to get along. For reference, see the Dark Ages, Stalin, Mao, and Hitler. Now, Schellenberger has written multiple articles for, for, for Forbes, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. He's also done TED Talks, some of which uh, uh, you can go take a look at for yourself. One of them was, How Fear of Nuclear Hurts the Environment. Why I Changed My Mind About Nuclear Power. Uh, another one is How Fear of Nuclear Ends. 
And another is why renewables can't save the planet. Now, listen, that doesn't sound like one of these extreme climate change activists. And by the way, we're talking about over 7 million views of these TED Talks. And that's what's so fascinating about Schellenberger. He, 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 he doesn't take the mainstream narrative on the issue of climate change and, and, and he doesn't take on this apocalyptic view on the matter that most do. He is really, truly solution-based. He doesn't talk at you and, uh, and, and smear the crisis in your face. Uh, but he's really, uh, he, 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 he appeals to actual reason and data-driven science. So his book, Apocalypse, uh, his book, Apocalypse Never, is really one of the best books I've picked up in a long time. And, and it exposes those who are power-driven and politicize climate change for their own personal gain and for control. And also offers an incredibly honest commentary of what is at play right now in our world. Now, again, while he doesn't mention or address the Great Reset outright, he certainly addresses where and how power-hungry elites want to shape the climate narrative and use it to reshape global politics and our entire financial system. And it's important to understand. uh, It's really vital to understand where he's coming from because at the heart of the Great Reset, which is a complete transformation of capitalism. It's, is this climate crisis and that everything we do with our economics, our business, our banking, our currency, technology, social justice, and and government must be based in green initiatives that completely reset the global system and and reset the global system away from fossil fuels. They are truly net zero. And fossil, they, they, they want to go away from fossil fuels to alternative forms of energy and to a more equitable, again, that word equitable, system of social governance. Again, the outside all sounds good. But underneath, it's quite, a, it's, it's quite literally a resurgence of serfdom. That's what it is. Remember that in their own words, released in their now promotional media, one of their objectives for the time we, by the time we reach the year 2030 is that you'll own nothing and be happy. That's serfdom. This is exactly what they mean when, when, when global leaders all use the slogan, build back better. It's not just Joe Biden using that. Except that the building will be done by them and for them. Now, it's, it's, it's Schellenberger's final chapter in his book that he entitled False Gods for Lost Souls that really was most eye-opening to me. In this final chapter of his book, he takes an honest look at where the science or what has now evidently become a dogma on climate has now come. And he observes this. Okay, this is Schellenberger talking. Environment. Environmentalism today is the dominant secular religion of the educated upper middle class elite in most developed and many developing nations. It provides a new story about our collective and individual purpose. It 
designates good guys and bad guys, heroes and villains. And it does so in the language of science, which provides it with legitimacy. He goes on to say this. On the other hand, apocalyptic environmentalism is a kind of new Judeo-Christian religion, one that has replaced God with nature. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, human problems stem from our failure to adjust ourselves to God. In the apocalyptic environmental tradition, human problems stem from failure to adjust to nature. Nature is, of course, a a direct result of creation as our human beings, if you come at it from the biblical worldview. But what this new orthodoxy of ecology does, as Schellenberger rightly points out, is that it sets nature up as God, and you and I are subservient to it. While the climate scientists, politicians, and activists who shell out this environmental theology have become the self-proclaimed priests or overlords because, well, they're the expert and morally righteous. I don't remember voting for that, do you? But it's all for our own well-being after all. They should know. Now, Schellenberger really almost becomes like this lone voice, the lone voice messenger that historically in the Judeo-Christian tradition was always trying to remind and call everyone back to common sense and to truth and to principle and out of blindness or to use modern terminology, wokeness. Which, by the way, only ended up hurting the entire nation, God's people. If you read the Old Testament, you find that God was just about those things which we all would agree are good and common sense in terms of how we live and how we relate to one another, how we treat each other. So just look at a few verses here from Scripture. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. An evil man does not understand such knowledge. It's out of the book of Proverbs. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Okay, it's Proverbs. Look uh, in the writings of Moses. You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Towards the end of the Old Testament in the book of Micah, you have this. What does God require of you but to do justice and love mercy? Now, who would disagree with any of that? I think the problem is, is that this tends to be clothed in religion uh, in, 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 in religion. Forget about religion. Look at the words. Look at the actual uh, um, uh, um, common sense that comes from this. Not to mention what the New Testament records in the life of Jesus Christ, who fed the hungry, took care of the needs of the destitute, showed love to those who society wished to cancel and were completely indifferent to. So take the book of James. He says, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
And again, who would disagree with that? Would Schellenberger agree with these things? I know that I do. And not because it's coming from some religion, but because it's common sense. Now, Schellenberger continues in, his, in, in this last chapter. He says, The trouble with the new environmental religion is that it has become increasingly apocalyptic, destructive, and self-defeating. It leads its adherents to demonize their opponents, often hypocritically. It drives them to seek to restrict power. Did you hear that? It drives them to seek to restrict power and prosperity at home and abroad. In other words, only those who are deemed worthy to lead us out of these crises, those with the money, the power, and the expertise, it's to them that power and prosperity belong, but nobody else. And he goes on to say, this spreads anxiety and depression without meeting the deeper psychological, existential, and spiritual needs its, ost- its ostensibly secular devotees seek. It's because fear is the driving force. And anger and revenge, the motivation. How can any society or, or, or race or species survive with this in, with, with, with this type of attitude and motivation ingrained in the heart. It can't. And it won't. It's just, as Schellenberger says, destructive and self-defeating. This is the real existential crisis, the one of the human soul. And as humanity has always done, they make for themselves these illusions or false gods, as Schellenberger uh, alludes, that are made in their own image. And that everyone else then must also adhere to so the rest of the world can find this utopia. Never once addressing the depth and condition of the human heart. And that it's there that we must find the courage and humility to change our attitudes and to see the value that each individual person has. And that we can't do that without the ideals of mercy and redemption at the center of what we believe. These elites, these activists, they call for justice, but forget that justice without mercy doesn't lead to peace and doesn't lead to some great society. And it doesn't lead to salvation. It only leads to darkness. Human history is really, truly the great revealer. It's the great leveler. In its records, we find that the overarching conflict of all humankind is between authoritarianism and liberty. All of the greatest wars, the greatest battles, 
They're all about standing up to tyranny in favor of human freedom. And if you go even deeper beyond the state of nations, down to the state of the heart, the human soul, these conflicts, they were and they still are tests of character. It comes down to you and to me deciding. It's, it's about towing the line or holding the line. And to toe the line, all you have to be is that person who, who sits by and watches as each individual person who is in violation of the state and their mandate is taken. Towing the line is being the person who stands by as they come for each person, each protester or each anti-vaxxer or each uh, uh, person who is uh, sharing misinformation, the pastor, the anti-science person. And each time you said nothing as they came for each of them until finally they come for you and now there's no one left to speak up. The one who holds the line, well, let's, let's, let's name a few of those who are examples of people who hold the line. William Wallace, you know, Braveheart. Perhaps not as well known, but still considered heroes because of their courage to stand against tyranny and oppression. William Tyndale, John Huss, Jerome, Martin Luther, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Frederick Douglass, and then closer to our time, Abraham Lincoln, Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King. And all of these and so many more have one thing in common. They were holders of the line. They were the lone voices speaking out against the great chorus of other voices who said no. Stop looking over there. Look over here. And they didn't point to themselves. They pointed to the lasting principles of life and liberty and said, stand here. Stand on this rock. And it took tremendous courage to do so. And it is for that very reason why it is that we, memorial, that we memorialize them and remember them. Because what they stood for is the point. They didn't toe the political or ideological lines of their time. They didn't play the game of control and power. And to give you more context, go back and listen to the episodes I did in October and November of 2020 about the Great Reset. All of the history I cover and the material that's available for you to research for yourself is there. It is directly connected to what I'm talking about now. If not for the heroes of the great of the Great Reformation, who fought against the author, the authoritarian rule of of their time, which was the Church, we wouldn't even have a United States of America. It took almost a century of fighting that same battle against not just the Church, but against the combined rule of the Church, and then combined with the state. 
which is what separates the U.S. in terms of its founding and constitution, that these two institutions, church and state, needed to be kept separate in order for the rights of individuals to be respected and for conscience to be the rule of how the social and political order were to be conducted. This is why the Great Reset is so vital to understand and know about, because based on the governance and the shifting of power through manipulation of finance, the banking system, and the recombining of religion and state together in order to assure that this global system of government does in fact take effect. From their perspective, see, they're doing all of this for the common good, which is the ideal of Catholic theology, which agrees with and even promotes the very ideals of the World Economic Forum, the IMF, United Nations, and all of the organizations and groups who are promoting the Great Reset. In order to keep the peace, society must be kept in check. Otherwise, the power that the governing body purports to have and is desperate to have is not possible. So long as we, you and I, the people, have the courage to hold the line and stand. And take note that it is always the people versus those in power, the elite class the rich, the powerful, the leaders of capital and finance, all of the experts in science and in academia, and the learned when it comes to matters of religion and theology, since in the issues of poverty, wealth, health, social equity, in matters of race and gender and climate, it is the duty of the people, the regular Joes and Janes, to defer and trust the intelligentsia. Yeah, that's, that's our job. Just trust us. We speak on behalf of, of science. We speak on, on, behalf of, uh, uh, on behalf of health and of God. And listen, there's nothing new in all of this. Look, let's listen in and, and, and get it straight from the horse's mouth. This is at a uh, recent World Economic Forum conference, and I want you to take uh, a moment to listen to uh, what this individual, this, this prominent world leader and elite has to say. You know, at, at Davos a few years ago, you know, the Edelman survey showed us that the good news is the elite across the world trust each other more and more. So we can come together and design and do beautiful things together. The bad news is that in every single country they were polling, the majority of people trusted that elite less. So we can lead, but if people aren't following, we're not going to to get to where we want to go. What do you even say to that? Is she really, are, are they all really that far removed from reality? Just uh, so that you know who she is, this is Niger Woods, and she's the founding dean of the um, Blavatnik School of Government and professor of global economic governance at the University of Oxford. And she was here present with other uh, uh, influential people of the world um, 
and uh, and this was at uh, at Dubai at the end of 2021. Well, let's just simplify what she said uh, to what they what they really sound like. Mom, Dad, they won't let us build what we want. They won't let us play the game we want to play. What this tells us, what what this really shows us is that they they may look like they care, but they don't. They don't care what the little people think. We're just livestock to them. And we're just in the way. It's their ideas, their expertise, their wealth, and 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 their knowledge that can and will take the planet to heights unknown and to solve all of the world's ills. Why can't everyone else just play along? No. The people don't want a king who claims or demands that he should be king. Those are the leaders you don't want in office and making decisions for you and for me. No. And this is where we go to one of our heroes in history. One who didn't and wasn't willing to toe the line. His name was John Huss. The year was 1402. It's a new century that had just dawned. He was peasant born and it, and it was no stranger to poverty. He was, he was a nobody. Just as ordinary as anyone who lived in the Middle Ages. You were either a part of the peasantry or you were part of the gentry. A landowner, which, which meant that you were not only wealthy, but you were high-born. And you were involved or even a part of the royal court. Uh, and by the way, included also being a churchman. Oh yes, you had your friars here and there who, who lived a life of modest means, but, but most who were priests or cardinals in that time were just like most politicians today and even a lot of preachers that you see today who are just rolling in it. Now Huss lived in Bohemia and that it, to us today is the Czech Republic. Huss had just been ordained and made head preacher of the Bethlehem Chapel, which still stands today. You can still go there. And it's located in the old town of Prague. This chapel was the most famous in this region, and so Huss had risen to a pretty high station for his time through his work and, and, and through his own education. Now, now, most of us, when we think of the Great Reformation, we think of Martin Luther and his 95 Theses and everything that happened as a result. But what came before, more than 100 years before Luther, was really the flame that started it all. Church and state were one power. The king was ordained by the church, which was God's representative on earth. And this was generally accepted. It wasn't really questioned. Whatever the local priest or the church wrote what they spoke in public and what they established as canonical law was the order of the day. It was an absolute rule. When you attended mass, you usually heard it in Latin and generally speaking, you didn't understand a word of it except for the nobility or the gentry. 
It was the norm that those among the population were illiterate, uneducated, and had never laid their eyes on an actual Bible, let alone any text concerning church law. It was actually unlawful to own or have possession of a Bible unless you were of the priesthood. And more than this, it was illegal to translate the Bible from Latin to any other language. Now, it's interesting that during the abolitionist period in the U.S., the conflict was much the same. Keep the slave illiterate. The saying went, if you would keep a people enslaved, refuse to teach them to read. And it was also illegal during slavery to educate the slaves that you owned. So essentially, this allows the church to say and claim whatever it wanted to, giving them a power that literally enslaved the whole of Europe under its grip. And here is Huss. And during his time as head of the Bethlehem Chapel, he then discovers the writings of one John Wycliffe, who himself had defied the Catholic Church by translating the Bible into English and went further to write that the Bible alone should rule above the Pope and any member of the clergy. Now, you want to talk about cancel culture. These guys could teach a whole course on cancel culture to those engaging in censorship campaigns today. Of course, back then... It wasn't just about ridiculing and discrediting a person. It wasn't just about stripping the person of his livelihood. It was prison. It was physical torture. It was execution. Not too far from where we're headed. Wouldn't you think? Now, Huss was among very few who strongly believed in presenting the Bible and its teachings and conducting the services in the language of the people. At the same time, Wycliffe's writings caused a major rift at the University of Prague. Huss and others had revived the spirit of reform and and, and protest against the abuses of the church and the hierarchy of the Pope himself. That the Bible alone should guide the individual by the dictates of his or her own conscience of how he or she should decide to live his or her life on matters of faith. And this is the point of why we shouldn't be quick to ignore or dismiss the reformers and what they accomplished in the past. It might seem a small thing to some, since we no longer live in a society that is governed by a pope or church and state. And yet liberty of conscience is at the heart of what we're seeing unfold in our world right now. And and yeah, Even the current Pope in the 21st century has a lot to say on the matter of conscience, as do the elites of our time. They're just dressed up in modern clothing and wearing an Apple Watch. But they're just as deluded with visions of grandeur and and these uh, visions of control and lust for power as any of their historical counterparts. And so with Huss, now at the forefront of this controversy, the church turns all of its ire on him and on the whole of Bohemia. According to Huss, the Bible was the final authority for the church. In other words, for the people. Beyond just the absolutist authority held by the Pope, 
was the way in which the church exploited the people by the selling of what is called indulgences. Literally, the Pope giving the people a lessened punishment for, 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 uh, for a sentence uh, um, of their sins in exchange for money. How much more corrupt and abusive could you get with those who couldn't read the Bible for themselves? You want to get out of purgatory, by the way? Purgatory, which is a teaching manufactured solely by the Catholic Church and nowhere to be found in the Bible, then pay up and you'll get that out of, purg- out of purgatory free card. And guess who would get a cut of all those sales? The crown. The king of Bohemia earned his cut. Everybody wins. Well, every elite wins. And so came the Pope's edict of excommunication of Huss, which was no small thing in, 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 in his day. And not only that, but the loss of the king's support. But Huss never backed down. He held the line. So as a result, the Catholic Church moves forward to enact an interdict. Now, what is an interdict? An interdict was... Um, It was like a censure. And it wasn't just on Huss. It was on the entire city of Prague. Basically, the citizens were forbidden to receive any church rights. That meant participating in church functions. Uh, You couldn't participate or even receive communion. You couldn't bury your own dead in, in the church cemeteries. In some cases, the complete closure of the churches crazy right now that type of thing doesn't happen now thankfully oh oh, wait Hmm. but Huss even at the risk of his own life held the line to the point that after many years in what could be called a self-exile and continuing to write and preach in the countrysides about the very issues of abuses of the church and even of the state authority The truth and principle of conscience was awakened among a people too long oppressed by that which was supposed to be a beacon of hope and light on the earth, but was responsible for one of the darkest times in the history of mankind. Huss was summoned to appear before a church council and had been promised by the Pope himself safe passage without fear of imprisonment or death, but as you might expect from the promise of a corrupt elite. He was captured and arrested upon his arrival to the city, and without a public hearing or trial, he was put in prison where he stayed and was poorly treated for a period of several months. But he held the line. And he paid for it with his own life on July 6, 1415, when he was publicly executed by burning. He held the line. But what line? The line of principle, the line of truth, the line that, was, oh, that, 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 that has always been held by lone heroes willing to protect and defend human conscience and human liberty against an elitist corrupt few who are right now in 2022 resurrecting the injustices of the past, though they say it is all in the name of the public common good, when all it really is for is for their own enrichment and the enslavement of all others. 
Now look, you may think this is all too dramatic. But we can toe the line. We can be just like those who grow complacent because, well, it just, that, that can't happen in our time. It's all talk. It's just rhetoric. Is it? We can easily fall prey to the normalcy bias. And in fact, go as far as to adhere to the new normal. It's for the public health. It's, it's for our own good. When it suddenly becomes necessary, as determined by some elite out there, that my liberties and, 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 and your liberties are secondary to the common good, that itself cancels out the common good. Because you can't betray the principles of the sanctity of life and our existence for some subjectively generically modified plan of how we plan to coexist together. History has plainly shown that these attempts of global governance always lead to the darkest moments in our history. Now, if you think that, 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 that in our time they can't really do this, then you are sorely mistaken. You are. Heroes are heroes plainly because they stand against such movements. These elites may wish and even think to be the earth's heroes. And I don't think all of them are nefarious. Let's, let's, let's establish that. Not all of them are sitting in their lairs going, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think that. But from what you just heard, Niger would say that there's really no understanding why it is we can't follow them, the, the elites of the world. There's a lack of self-awareness. And, and, and frankly, I think they're deluded. And that lack of self-awareness is their downfall. The question is, are you willing to go down with them? I'm not, and I won't. Now, all of this is not to anger us. It's not to make us feel like we have no way out. On the contrary, it's to give us hope. Because there are two sides, one that toes the line and the other that holds the line. Well, guess what? Those that hold the line win we win if we stand and have the courage to hold the line the great reset is nothing to be afraid of it it really isn't and that's not the point of 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 taking time to 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 inform ourselves and take a look at all of this it's an opportunity for each one of us to 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 be tested to see what we're made of to see what we're capable of when it matters. To be like those heroes who, who are in their own times, who stood up in the middle of their own apocalypse and said, don't be afraid. Don't give in. Don't let them tell you that you're incapable, that you are not a product of creation and of intentional love. 
You see, the humanistic view that, sees, that, 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 that seeks to control through fear does the opposite of what the biblical worldview espouses. Love is at the heart of everything bound to truth, to that truth that has physical embodiment in the person of Jesus. His life and his very death, his resurrection to new life, and now his return that gives us all redemption and actual triumph over the evil and darkness that we now see. And even Michael Schellenberger makes this distinction in his book. He says, in place of love, forgiveness, kindness, and the kingdom of heaven, today's apocalyptic environmentalism offers fear, anger, and the narrow prospects of avoiding extinction. Seems kind of shallow and narrow, doesn't it? It would seem that science has done just as much, if not more, to entrench orthodoxy into a religious extremism that we are seeing unfold right before us. But the end, from the point of view of the person of Jesus, isn't extinction. You see, you could say, well, wait a minute. You know, there's a lot of Bible-thumping extremists out there who are just as uh, apocalyptic in their language. Well, sure. But here's the thing. The word apocalypse doesn't mean destruction. It doesn't mean chaos. The word apocalypse means revelation. It means to know, to, to reveal. It's about hope because in knowing, in knowing what's coming, we don't have to be afraid. The message of the biblical worldview is new beginning because at the heart of the message is mercy forgiveness and redemption. It doesn't matter the things that you've chosen to do that you're not proud of and that society may say deserves justice, but the justice that is entrenched in revenge and anger. The message of the biblical worldview is it doesn't matter what you've done. Leave it behind you and have the courage to change. And not to toe the line that everyone else is saying you have to pick up and, you, and, and, and that you have to uh, toe with everybody else because you're guilty. Why is it that so many look at, at, at this biblical worldview and the person of Jesus and find it hard to believe or accept, but are willing to accept this, this point of view of this cultic extremism? And the end of all civilization, this despondent and depressing outlook of human destiny, and would be willing to enslave and give up their liberties right now to save the species. If that's as deep as science and all of these experts can go, then they leave a big gaping hole with no bridge to cross over it. It's not just talk. It's already being enacted in governments and in large corporations, in banking, in academia, and through activism, especially on the issue of climate. Here's John Kerry, okay, climate czar for the United States of America, answering a question by um, a moderator uh, during a World Economic Forum virtual event 
Um, the moderator's name is uh, Borge Brenda, in which Brenda asked, uh, he asked Carrie, are we expecting too much too soon from the new president or is he going to deliver first day on these topics? And what, he, and what he's referring to is the Great Reset. And here's Carrie's answer. Uh, the answer to your question is no, you're not expecting too much. And yes, it will happen. And I think it will happen with greater speed and with greater intensity than a lot of people might imagine. And all of this is out there. It's not being kept from the public. The World Economic Forum uh, devotes a majority of its webpage to this very issue on the Great Reset with articles and, and video content, all the conferences that have taken place over the last uh, uh, two years, all available for you to see for yourself. And the language is just as stark, just as intentional and deliberate as you just heard. And it is now operational in real time in society. And don't take my word for it. You have to do your own digging. This is just a conversation. I'm convinced of it. I'm, I'm doing my research. I'm sharing this with you. But you've got to go out there and do it yourself. Don't just believe this because I'm saying it. You don't know who I am. I don't know who you are. But there's no reason why I would be sharing this information if I didn't believe it. But you've got to do your own digging. The greatest power that we still have is to actively search and inform ourselves because knowledge is power. In the wrong hands, it means control. But in the right hands, it means liberty. And this is a subject we're going to continue to be talking about in the months to come, about this very issue so keep listening. The greatest test of character is now before us in our time. We can either be towers of the line or beholders of the line. Thank you for listening to The Truth Reel. If you want to know more about our podcast, you can subscribe where all podcasts are available. You can also get more of our content and listen to more episodes of The Truth Reel at truthreel.transistor.fm. That's truthreel.transistor.fm.